morning, Redemption. My name is Warren. I'm one of your pastors, and I'm so glad to be with you today as we are continuing on in our series through the book of Revelation. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The line comes from one of, the, one of my favorite movies, one of the movies I used to love watching over and over as a kid growing up. You guys, I'm sure, have those movies in your life. And so for us in the Williams household, that movie was The Wizard of Oz. I love that movie, right? I can still like envision holding the VHS tape, which makes me feel very old, right? <laughs> but we'd watch it over and over. And if you remember how that story goes, right? There's Dorothy and Toto, and they get whisked away from Kansas um, to the magical country of Oz, which for us being in the Bronx, Kansas might as well have been Oz because we didn't know anything about that. And they get whisked away to Oz and they go on this journey. Right, they go on this journey that in hopes of them being able to get back home because there's no place like home, right? And so they go and they meet the cowardly lion and the scarecrow and the tin man and they walk on the yellow brick road and really they're trying to get to, the, to where the wizard is, right? They're trying to get to the palace, the headquarters of where the wizard is. And so finally they get there. And if you remember that scene, it's a really memorable one. It kind of stands out above the rest because when they get in there, it's a terrifying moment. Right? There's like lights flashing. There's plumes of smoke. There's fire. The wizard's voice is booming all throughout the room, and they're kind of just standing there in awe, right? And then, like, as they're standing there, the camera pans to little Toto, right? And Toto scurries over the, the side of the room. And he goes to this part of the room where there's like a curtain, and he tugs the curtain back. And at that moment, it's like a great reveal. Because the wizard is not who we thought he was, right? The wizard's not who we thought he was. Right? When the curtain's drawn back, it's revealed that the wizard's just a normal guy. He's just a regular guy. Actually, he was from Kansas himself. He kind of got like stuck there or something. And so he, the, the curtain is drawn back and it's revealed and it's then where he says that line. He says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? And so the curtain is drawn back. And reality is revealed. And if you've been paying attention during our Revelation series, right, even the graphic right now, what does this say? The revealing of reality. One thing that Revelation does is it draws the curtain back and shows us what reality is actually like. And so today, as we, been, as we dive into Revelation 12, we're going to get another opportunity to do just that. The curtain is going to be drawn back even more. And today, the curtain is going to be drawn back on the greatest enemy of the church himself, Satan. And so what are we going to see when the curtain's drawn back? What's going to be revealed about the character and nature of our great enemy? That's what we'll be exploring today. But before we do, would you, would you join me in prayer? God, we, we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as we go through it, that we know, Lord, that uh, as your word goes out, God, it does something. It always does something. And so, God, I pray for today to be another opportunity where we will be formed and shaped more like you, Jesus. Allow your word to do that. Jesus, you be the brightest light in this room today. We love you. Your name. Amen. Okay, open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we are going to spend some time breaking it down. So here's what it says. Revelation 12, 1 through 6. Uh, you can also follow along on the screen. It says this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, 
a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his head, heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So today, I got one point. Got one point to make. And my one main point is this. There is a war that has been won. There is a war that has been won. Jesus has defeated Satan and the powers of sin and death. We can confidently declare that the war has been won. But there is a battle that also continues. So what do we see in our passage today? Well, last week, right, Jake so impressively took us through four chapters of Revelation, man. I was, I was totally impressed with that. I was like, dude, how'd you do that, man? But he did it. Um, and he took us through Revelations chapters 8 through 11. And what we were reminded of, right, is just how this book is full of just some really profound signs and symbols. Like last week, we talked about the seven trumpets and the two witnesses. And this week, as we dive into Revelation 12, we're going to see some more signs. We're going to see that John sees some more signs in heavens. And um, if there's something that we've just been repeating throughout this series, it's just like the importance of understanding symbols as symbols, right? Not uh, necessarily over fixating on all their literal meanings, but really trying to understand the realities that they're pointing us to. And so let's start with the first sign that John sees. I'm going to have a picture come up on the screen here. Uh, it's another painting by the artist Albert Drewer. Uh, John, a couple of weeks ago, used a painting by him. And yeah, pretty terrifying stuff for sure. Um, but let's talk about it, right? What is it? It's an illustration of Revelation 12. And what we see, in, if we look at some of the signs, right? we look at the, the signs that John sees, the first one is that of the woman. She's clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet, and she has a crown of stars on her head. Right? Who is this woman? Right? What is this sign pointing us to? Well, this sign right, is a representation of the people of God all throughout history. Right, and so how do we know that? Well, we know that because the way that she's described with clothes with the sun, um, with the moon under her feet, the crown of stars, that's a harken back to the Old Testament book of Genesis. And it's uh, a harken, a reference to the, the story of Joseph, right? It's in the Old Testament book there where Joseph, he tells his brothers a, a dream that he had, right? And in the dream, he tells them that eventually they're gonna bow down to him. And you can imagine they didn't love that, right? And so uh, he uses these these terms of like the sun and the moon and the stars to tell that dream, right? And so there's a hearken back to, to the Old Testament and a representation of Israel. But it's not just that, right? Because as we continue on in the passage and we see this woman described, her offspring is also described as those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, right? And so she is a sign that points to the people of God all throughout history. So that's the first sign. The second sign that John sees is that of the great red dragon. It says he has seven, horn, seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. Talks about his tail sweeping down a third of the stars of heaven and casting them to earth. Now, for this sign, 
I'm sure you guys have kind of arrived at who this one is representing, right? Doesn't take much guesswork, right? This isn't Pete's dragon or Puff or none of those dragons, right? (laughs) This dragon, right, is a representation of Satan, right, of the demonic forces that are aligned with him, the fullness of it. That's why we see that number seven repeated over and over, right? It's the fullness of Satan and the demonic forces that are aligned with him and uh, that are opposed to Christ and his kingdom. And so today, right, we're going to be talking a lot about Satan and the demonic and and spiritual battles. And I know as we open up this text, right, we open up this conversation, there could be a lot of different reactions in the room, right? I think one of the first reactions that I've been familiar with in my experience with church is that whenever we talk about Satan, some people like to really overemphasize the effects of Satan, right? For every bad thing that happens in their life, they're like, the devil made me do it, right? Kind of reminds me when I was younger, um, I, was, I was growing up at this church where this would happen. And one time we were at a prayer meeting and this lady comes, she just got off a flight from Trinidad and she goes, hey guys, I just want you to know that there were 17 demons on that flight. And I was like, Make sure, I'd never want to fly with you. Right? Let me know when you're booking flights so I can just stay far away. I was thinking today, this is a bad joke, but I was like, she should have flown spirit, right? Come on, come on. Right there, right there. But the reality is what we found out is that she just had like a turbulent, like a lot of turbulence on her flight. Like it was just, it wasn't necessarily the work of the demonic, it was just rough air, right? And so sometimes that's what we do. There's this temp- tendency to overemphasize, and we want to be really, be, we want to be really careful about that. Because what we don't want to do is attribute the characteristics of God to Satan. Right? We don't want to treat Satan like he's all-powerful like he's all-knowing, like he's present everywhere, because that's not true. And what Revelation 12 actually goes on to tell us is how exactly he's confined. So we'll get into that. We'll talk more about that. And so that's one reaction. But there is also another unhealthy extreme. And the other unhealthy extreme is to just totally downplay or dismiss. Totally downplay and dismiss the notion of Satan and demonic influence. And I mean, there's many ways we can get there, right? Um, I'm talking about believers here. Maybe we could go, it's not logical. Like, why would God have an enemy, right? Like, maybe we could be more comfortable with the thought of God and kind of dismiss the notion of the demonic. But what I want to say today is no. Like, Satan is real. The demonic is real. It's a real thing that we have to contend with, right? Scripture is very clear in that regard. And if you just want to go, okay, where do we see it? Well, look at evil that happens all around us, right? The biggest influencer of evil in our world is undoubtedly Satan and the demonic, right? And so we experience his attacks in our world. And as we get back in our passage, what we'll see is that it's not just us who experience those attacks, right? Satan has been attacking all throughout history and attacking the people of God all throughout history and specifically within the life and work of Jesus. So if you look at Revelation 12, 4, what does it say? It says, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So what's happening there? Well, the woman that we heard about, the first sign, she's about to have a child. It says that she was crying out in the agony of childbirth. And so the question might be, who is that child? Come on, it's the answer you can give to like 99% of church questions, right? None other than Jesus, right? 
And the image we get there is that Jesus comes through the people of God, right? As he's born from the line of David, comes out of Israel. Um, and so he's birthed through the people of God. And what we see there, right, is that as he's birthed, as he comes to earth, the dragon is looking to destroy him. And so what Revelation 12 is kind of doing for us is we're getting kind of a, a retelling of the birth and life and ministry of Jesus. We're getting it from a new perspective, right? We just went through the Advent season and we retold and we talked about the Christmas story. And as we may be familiar with what we read about Jesus in the Gospels, what Revelation 12 is kind of doing, it's kind of doing like a, 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 a Knives Out move, right? You know the movie Knives Out or the, or the Sixth Sense, right? Where you, a story is told, and then at the end, it's like, oh, here's what you missed, right? Bruce Willis was dead the whole time, right? If that's a spoiler alert, I don't, really don't feel bad about it at all. It's been 30 years, I think. <laughs> and so we're given this new perspective on what we thought we understood. And what we'll see is that Jesus, uh, sorry, what we'll see is that the dragon has been trying to destroy Jesus and through, from his birth and all throughout his ministry. Where, where might we have missed it? Where might we have missed it? Well, think about this. King Herod, right? If you remember, he was the king at the time when Jesus was born. And what does he try to do, right? When the wise men come and tell him that there's a king that is being born, he goes and kills every child under the age of two. And so you think about that and you go, well, maybe he's just a power-hungry tyrant. You know, he was afraid of what Jesus would mean to his power. And, you know, he just took what normal, powerful people do, right? Try to protect themselves at all costs. But no, what Revelation 12 is telling us is it, it wasn't that Herod was just a power-hungry tyrant. He was a tool used by Satan to try to, to, to eliminate Jesus before his birth. Take another instance, right? There is the other instance in the gospel where the apostle Peter, right? He goes to Jesus and he's like, man, you don't have to go to a cross. Come on, man. Like, dude, do you see the movement that we have? We can take this to the world, right? And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. And you might look at an instance like that and be like, whoa, overreaction much, right? No, it wasn't an overreaction. Jesus saw exactly what was happening behind the curtain. And he saw that what the enemy was trying to do through Peter was to go, you can get a crown without going to the cross. And so Jesus appropriately responds and he goes, no, get behind me, Satan. And that would be the, the, the theme, the narrative all throughout the scriptures. We would see Satan would use all. He would throw the kitchen sink at Jesus, right? He would try to attack him through religious leaders, his own family, his friends, even the Roman government. Satan would throw everything to try to destroy the life and work of Jesus. But did it work? Did it work? What does it say in Revelation 12, 5 and 6? It says, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. And so did it work? No. Satan failed. Jesus won the victory. The war was decisively won at Calvary. The war was decisively won on the cross. And so we can confidently declare that, yes, the war is over. And why? Why? Well, we can declare that because Jesus never gave in to Satan's schemes. 
Jesus never gave into Satan's plots, his schemes, and instead he shattered the works of the devil by remaining completely sinless. And it's through his life, his death, and his resurrection that he broke the power of Satan's sin and death. He broke the power. He broke the penalty. And this is, at, uh, this is what's at the very heart of the gospel, is that Satan and the works of evil have been disarmed, that they no longer have the power, that Jesus won the victory, that he reigns supreme. And what he's done and what Revelation uh, as a book as a whole reminds us of is he's called us into his family, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue called into his family so that we can embrace and live into the victory that he has won on our behalf. And so because he is the victor, we were able to be victorious. So we see Satan takes the loss. And what we see as the pastors, this part of the pastors closes out as we see a symbol of God's protection, right? The reference to the 1260 days there. It's a, in Revelation, that's a metaphor for God's enduring protection. And so just as Christ was kept, so will we. We'll talk more about that in a second. But as we continue on in our passage, what we see is that it's not the only loss that Satan's going to take. The losses are about to stack up. What does it say in Revelation 12, 7 through 9? It says this, Now war rose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon, excuse me, was thrown down. So the curtain is drawn back even more. And now we see that there's this war that happens in heaven. And this war starts because the victory of Christ, right, it serves as a catalyst for a battle, for a, war, for a battle between the forces of God and the forces of Satan. Uh, water break there, man. <clears throat> and so what do we see? We see that there's this character introduced, right, an angel by the name of Michael. Who's Michael? Well, Michael is an archangel or an angel of high ranking, and what we know about him in Scripture, he appears in the Old Testament book of Daniel, he appears in the New Testament book of Jude, and what we can gather is that he is a, a, a protector of God's people, right? He keeps and protects God's people, he's a defender, and he opposes the devil in a very direct way. And so what happens there, right, is Jesus is enthroned, and it serves as this catalyst to this battle that happens in heaven, and what we see is that uh, uh, so so the, the forces of God, forces of Satan battle against each other and Satan loses. And what the Bible tells us, right, is that his punishment is that he's thrown down to earth. Now, why is that the case? Because I know we don't want him here, right? Bible doesn't tell us, right? It doesn't tell us exactly why that's the case. But what it does allude to this is to this reality that at some point he had access to heaven and that's no longer the case. Him and his angels are confined to earth. And here's what I love about what John does, right? Here's what I love about what the Spirit working through John, what he tells us, right? The next part of this, this chapter is really helpful because if there was any mystery as to who this dragon represents, it gets really clear for us, right? What does he say in verse 9? He says, the ancient serpent, the great dragon was thrown on the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
And so it's there that we get a very clear description as to what are the core identities of our great enemy. What is he? What does it say he is? It says he's a deceiver, the world, and an accuser of the church. So what does that mean? Well, as the deceiver, what he does is he erodes our trust in God's goodness. He erodes our trust in God's existence. And he erodes the reality and the severity of sin. And I think for so many of us here in the Western church, in the Western hemispheres, what he tells us is that there is no spiritual realm for us to be concerned about, that we don't need to think about the spiritual. In some ways, it's kind of like that wizard, right? There's nothing behind the curtain, right? And so what he tries to tell us is there's nothing you need to be, you don't need to be concerned about your spiritual health. All you can trust is whatever you can deduct by logic and reason. So that's one way, right? He deceives. But it's not only that. He's an accuser. And what does he do as the accuser? What he tries to do is to keep our sins over us. He wants to remind us of our sins. He wants us to feel completely unworthy of God's love. Right? He wants us to feel like we can never be a part of God's family. And so he plants all sorts of seeds of doubts in our hearts and our minds about who we are, who God is. And what he does is he does this move, right? Because this is a really effective move. He goes, the cross wasn't enough. The cross wasn't enough for you. There's more that you need to do. There's more that you need to do to gain God's love. There's more that you need to do to actually feel or know that you have value. And so what he tries to do is his main strategies are downplaying sin and downplaying God's grace. Downplaying sin and downplaying God's grace. And if we think about it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because if we downplay sin and downplay God's grace, God is going to feel like a distance from us, right? And that's what Satan wants us to feel, is distant from God. Right? Satan doesn't want us to come to the reality that God loves us because he loves us. He doesn't want us to know that. Right? He, he was shocked that God would send his son to earth. And then he was even more shocked that his son would endure and go to the cross and actually die for sinners like you and I. He was shocked by God's love for us. And so he wants us to feel separated from that love. So we have to remember, whenever we downplay sin and downplay grace, we are most closely mirroring the actions of Satan. So what's next, right? Well, what's next is John hears this voice in heaven, and the voice is that of celebration, right? It's a celebration of the victory that has been accomplished. And what we hear from is the martyrs, those, the faithful witnesses who have gone on and lived a life of endurance, and now they reign with Jesus, and they've been able to conquer, And so what does it tell us about how they conquered? Well, it tells us that they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So what do we see there? We see that those who have conquered, those who have endured, have recognized that the blood of Jesus is enough, that they are kept by the blood of Jesus. And so the blood of Jesus that was shed was good for the original recipients of this letter. It's good for us today, and it will be good for every generation that will come. And what this blood has allowed them to do, right, what it empowered them to do is, see, when God saves us, he doesn't just change our status. He gives us strength. 
And what the blood has been able to do is to propel those who have conquered into a life of faithfulness. What does it say, right? It says that they lived, they, they, they conquered by the word of their testimony. So what does that mean? That means that they lived the life of obedience to Jesus. They lived the life where they were able to endure. And they lived the life of self-denial. And we got to remember that, you know, why is that important? Well, it's important because what Satan wants us to do is to prioritize our own wants, our own needs, our own desires over and above our love for God. It's exactly what he was trying to do with Jesus in the wilderness. And so those, we hear from those who have remained faithful, those who have been victorious and been able to conquer. But what Revelation 12 also emphasizes, what it wants to make sure that we understand is we aren't having a history lesson here or talking about something happening in the future. We're talking about something that we are presently involved with. It reminds us that the war has been won, but there is a battle that is very present to us. What does it say in verse 12? It says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. You know, that description there of Satan knows, was attacking in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. It reminds me of... Um, We've been reading this book recently. It's called uh, Same as Ever by an author by the name of Morgan Housel. And he talks about expectations. And one of the things that he talks about in expectations is he tells this story uh, from World War, II, World War II, one of the most devastating like, events in World War II. And um, it was the Battle of the Bulge. And so with that battle, if you're unfamiliar, um, there was like 19,000 Americans killed, 70,000 wounded or missing. It was like one of the worst battles that happened in World War II, right? And really the surprising part about it is it happened like just a couple of months before the war was over, right? That's not usually when like one side launches their worst attacks. A lot of times they're trying to come to some sort of agreement, get out of it as best as they can. Uh, but, you know, it's not what happened. Right? Hitler attacks, and what happens is the American forces are like really caught off guard because they were looking at the situation, and they're like, well, the German troops, like they have underage uh, troops, they have limited supplies, like things were so bad, the German generals actually went to Hitler and were like, hey, we don't have any fuel, and he was like, just take it from the Americans. And I bet they were like the first people in history to just go like, what? Like, that didn't make any sense. But, he, but yet he attacks, right? And he attacks and it's totally severe. And what I love is how the author describes Hitler's mentality. What he says is that Hitler wasn't rational. He was living in his own world, detached from reality and reason. To him, reality didn't matter. To him, reality didn't matter. Can't we say the same about the enemy that we face? To him, the reality of how he's been defeated doesn't matter. He just keeps on with his attacks, even though he knows he's lost. He's like that beast that's been wounded and just continues to rage out. And so for us as the people of God today, what we know is that yes, there is a war that has been won, but yes, we are also still in the thick of the battle. This was true for the original hearers of this, and it's also true for us today. And so here's the thing. When, when Satan attacks, right, he doesn't come wearing like the red suit and the horns or having his head spinning like the girl from the exorcist, like none of those things, right? 
he comes much more subtly and deceptively. And so what are some ways that we see Satan attack the church today? This isn't an exhaustive list. These are just some big picture things to consider. I think one of the first ways he attacks is by encouraging compromise. Encourages followers of Jesus to compromise. And what happens is we start to hold values like success and independence and security and self-protection at all costs and comfort. And we hold these things above everything else. And what happens is the emotions of pride and jealousy and uh, all these things, they overcome us and they totally supplant any sort of striving or, or, or the reality of the fruit of being like Christ growing in our lives. And so what happens is we, we, we start to value all these other things instead of faithfulness. And what we just have to know is that if you are a follower of Jesus, your happiness shouldn't be your main goal. If you're a follower of Jesus, your comfort isn't your main goal. If you are a follower of Jesus, your main striving, what you are after is faithfulness. Faithfulness. You see, when we see Jesus in heaven, when we meet him, he's not going to go, well done, my good and comfortable servant. Well done, my good and really successful servant. What does he say? Well done, my good and faithful servant. So faithfulness is what we're after. And it's this reality that God's kingdom, right, the life that we are called into as followers of Jesus, the way is very different than that of the world. Very different. Being a citizen of the kingdom necessarily calls us to humility, calls us to sacrificial love, a love that actually costs something. It looks like extending grace to others when we could actually crush It's very different than what the world offers. So that's the first way, encouraging compromise. It's not the only way. The second thing, the second way that Satan often attacks us today is making us doubt the truth. How does he do that? Well, it makes us think that God's word is either irrelevant or outdated. God's word is either irrelevant or outdated. We see whatever the big issue is of our day, the latest thing to come across. And oftentimes, if someone goes, okay, well, what does Scripture say about this? You can just hear the groan throughout the room, right? It's like, oh, man, yeah, it says some good things, but really, we need to figure it out for ourselves today. And what we just have to realize there is when that happens, right, when we start to see God's word as irrelevant or outdated, that's the enemy using his literal oldest trick in the book. It's the question he asked Adam and Eve in the garden, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Did God really say that his way is the only way? Did he really say that? And so what do we do when the enemy asks that question? Well, here's the thing. When the enemy asks that question, we aren't left without direction. We can turn to actually the gift of God's revealed word and go, yes, God really did say it. God really did say it. And just as Jesus did in the wilderness, when he was tempted and Satan was trying to say, hey, I'll give you the crown. I'll give you the authorities. He says, no, this is what God said. It's the same thing that we are to do. It's to go, God really did say, and I can trust God because he's trustworthy, because he's good, because his word is kinder than I can ever be. Because he is worthy and I can go ahead and build my life on the firm foundation of his word. I can plant my feet there 
and go, yes, God, you really did say it and it's good. God, you really did say it and you're reliable. God, you really did say it and I'm going to build my life on you. That's the second way. It's the last one. Another way that Satan attacks the church. Simply by making us divide. When arguments and all sorts of divisions arise among the church, man, we are really good at deceiving ourselves and dividing ourselves, man. It's like a skill. We can divide over worship styles. We can divide over social issues. We divide over generational differences. We divide over race. We divide over class. We divide over all sorts of personal offenses and unforgiveness. And what the reality is, is there is like Jesus has called us together. He's called people from all sorts of different perspectives. He's called people from all tribes, tongues like we talked about, and he's called us to be one. He has torn down the walls of hostility between his people. And so how are we as followers of him going to build new middle walls between us? How? And, you know, the place where I've seen this the most present, you know, in the church at large, I'm not talking about redemption, 10 people, I'm just talking about the church at large, um, is when it comes to politics. Politics, man, done a number on us in the past however many years, right? And kind of the bad news is it's ramping up again, right? I can't go one minute without hearing Trump or Biden, man. It's like, they, uh, like they're traveling with me or something, man. Everywhere you go, you hear about it, you know? It's ramping up again. Here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to say. As another political season approaches us, right, can we make that commitment that we've made over the past couple years, right, that regardless of our political affiliation, we are going to come together because we know and we believe and live as a testimony that Jesus is king. Can we commit to that? Can we commit to that, church? Jesus is king. And so we are going to stand united in our faith. It doesn't mean that we won't have disagreements. But the disagreements, right, don't remove the commands of one another that we see throughout Scripture. Right? And so there are many ways that Satan continues to attack, right? The reality is, is just as we heard from those who have gone on, is that there's this reality for us that we, the battles that we face can be won. And so what are some big picture things? What are some ways that we can overcome and conquer the enemy as he attacks us in our day? Well, one is this. We have to be aware of the, the schemes of Satan. We got to stay alert. We got to evaluate what's influencing our spiritual vision. Sometimes it can be the shows we watch, podcasts we listen to, right? the different voices that fill our minds, fill our ears and fill our minds, and fill our hearts from week to week. And if you want to like think through how to do that. Well, come out to first Wednesday, actually, because we're going to be doing that. I know uh, for my question last week, a lot of you guys are watching Love is Blind. I was praying for you all this week. <laughs> but the reality is, it's not that these things are evil in themselves. It's not that they're inherently evil, but there's this reality that what evil can sometimes do is borrow the appearance of good things. So you just need to be mindful of that. So we want to maintain a clarity of vision. And how do we do that? Well, we do it by reliance on God's word and spirit. We lean on God. And what God's word does is it gives us exactly what we need to know. And what his spirit does is it leads us, right? It shows us the way. His word is a light onto our path and a lamp on our feet. It shows us the way. 
And what the Spirit does is it empowers us, right? We can't just do it by our own sweat and striving. We need the Spirit of God at work in us that puts sin to death. And so what it does is it allows us to break free. And here's the thing. It's not just a personal thing. But we should be, as we go out into the world, our people, right, that reflect the truth, that resist the impact of Satan in every single area of our lives. That's why we say all of life is all for Jesus, because we are claiming that the kingdom of God has come. And we are going to go forward into our workplaces. We are going to go forward to our classrooms. We are going to go forward in every sphere that God has placed us in and actively resist the impact of the fall actively resists wherever Satan wants to claim for himself, actively resist it. You see, what we have to realize is because Satan's time is short, what he wants you to believe is that all the spheres that you inhabit are hopeless. He wants you to believe that your work is hopeless, the church is hopeless, your marriage is hopeless, family is hopeless. And here's the thing, because the tomb was empty, because the power of God has broken into our world, we don't even believe that we've obtained the right to use that word. None of those places are hopeless. Hope is alive. The power of God's grace goes way further than whatever sin can do. And so we move into those places with that knowledge, trusting that we will be empowered to live our lives as a testimony to Jesus by his spirit. Here's the last thing. It's this. It's remember that you are protected. Know you are protected. So here's what we have to know. Because of Jesus' victory, we have the victory. Oh, I don't think you heard me. I said because of Jesus' victory, we have the victory. All believers, past, present, future, Right? Those who have gone on before us, those who are here today, those who are in redemption, kids probably annoying their teachers right now and will probably come in you know, at some point and replace us when we're dead and gone. They won't need a new sacrifice. The blood of Jesus covers all of us and it keeps us. It's that image that John gave us, right? The black box, we are sealed, we are kept. Jesus loves, he saves us and he keeps us by his blood. That's why we gotta tell our kids that. That's why we got to tell them, that's the greatest inheritance we can give them, is to tell them that they are protected, that they are kept, that Jesus has them. And what we know is what the uh, Hebrews tell us is that Christ has secured our eternal redemption through his blood. He has appeared once and for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has appeared once and for all. And so even though we may live sacrificially, we can never be the sacrifice. Jesus has done the work. He has said it is finished, and it's in that finished work that we know that we are kept. It is the definitive basis for our victory over Satan. His protection keeps us. And here's the thing, right? As he keeps you and you realize that you, con you can conquer and you can endure, what happens is actually your spiritual vision gets really clear. And you start to see the enemy for exactly who he is. And actually, it doesn't bring more fear in your heart. It brings more encouragement because you see that, yes, he is raging out. That, yes, he is mortally wounded. And, yes, he will never win. So we are reminded nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
And so if you are in Christ, rest assured, the enemy's plans will not have the final word over your life. It will not. Jesus has won the victory. And because he is the victor, we share in that victory. So our duty, our goal, our striving is just to remain faithful. Remain faithful. Remain faithful until we either go to Jesus or he comes to us. Until that day where he finally puts Satan and all the works of darkness to death, where their expiration date finally comes due once and for all. And so church, my encouragement to you, remain faithful. Remain faithful. Remember that you're kept. Let's pray. Jesus, we we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you, Lord, for this reality. Curtain is drawn back, Lord, and we know that you have the victory, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You have won the victory, God. There are so many ways, Lord, as we go through life, Lord, where we can believe the lies of the enemy. Mm. Lies about who he says you are. The lies about who he says we are. But God, I pray, Lord, that the victory that you've won, Lord, would not just be in our minds, but would sink to the depths of our hearts, Lord. That we would live from the reality of the love that you have for us. That we would live from the victory that's been accomplished at Calvary. Lord, we can't be faithful by our own strength. We need your spirit moving in us, showing us the way, empowering us to live for you. The good news is, God, uh, you don't just wish us well, God. You will us to it. You allow us to do it. And so allow us, Lord, to live in the power of your spirit each and every day. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Now we are going to move into a time of response. invite you to stand as we respond. Here at Redemption, we respond in four ways. The first way is through communion. It's through communion that we remember right, the sacrifice that has been made on our behalf. Jesus gave his body, his blood for us, and that we are kept because of what he's accomplished. Next, we respond in prayer. Today, I want to invite you forward. If there is some lie the enemy has been telling you about yourself, there's some lie that the enemy has been telling you about who God is, come forward. Let's pray, and we would love to pray with and for you and to encourage you in the truth. Next, respond in giving. You've heard today how much God has given us. And so our giving right, of our talent, our times, our treasures is an overflow of our gratitude for what God has done for us. And lastly, we respond with singing. And we respond in singing, joining in to what's happening in heaven, worship. And so each week we come and we sing out in worship of our God who is worthy of all our praise. So I invite you now, uh, the band is going to play, I invite you to respond as the Spirit leads.